one of the biggies in our house of an evening is we're looking for good TV between about eight and nine. We're a family of five. We want it to be appropriate for a, a wide age demographic. So the wildlife shows are good, you know, especially the ones on the BBC. And no matter which wildlife show you watch, there's always one with the antelope and the lion sequence. Are you familiar with this kind of setup? The antelopes uh, in a big, you know, big sort of gang look like the most boring creatures in the world, pretty much just moseying on in there together, chewing away on their grass, having the chat, really happy with life in the background. And Richard Attenborough's voice just whispers over the top very delicately, just kind of soothing your soul, doesn't it? And the lions are in the background, sort of like crack SAS sort of dudes sneaking in on these antelopes that are just moseying on, chewing the cud, chilled out. All of a sudden, boom, a million antelopes clear, just, just like bolt, just like get out of the place really quick. And there's this big like smoke and dust and everything else. And what's happened is you know they've, one of them's got a whiff, one of the lions, one of them clocked one of the lions, so they bolt like mad. Apart from, and it's always like, I feel like the BBC sellers this year on year, they just run the same movie. There's this always one, isn't there? Have you noticed that there's one antelope that stays there, carries on chewing the grass, has a look around, and he's like, everyone's gone. River running next to us, good. Grass is good, it's a nice place to be. Why did everybody leave? He's kind of just looking out at this plane, wondering what's going on. Meanwhile, in the background, the crack SAS, Lion 1, Lion 2, you can almost see him drooling at this point, like teaming up, giving it a bit of the, you, you sneak in there, you. It's, it's all, all this is happening, and by this point, you're watching the TV, and you screw, you're just, all five of our gang will be going, run, and run. Just, you know, you need to be aware of the bigger picture here. Just run. Then what happens is the antelope just keeps on looking out at the meadow, keeps on being really happy with his own world, just keeps on chewing. And before you know it, line number one, line number two have converged on the antelope. The antelope started to run, but it's too late. He's got his head ripped off. He's been chewed apart. He's been eaten alive. Bless him, his head's ripped off and his back leg's still kicking out, still thinking, I can get away here. I can still make a run for this. I can still get away. And what you want to say to this antelope is, all that matters in your life, Mr. Antelope, chewing on the cud, is that you get a hold on which way the food chain works. That's, you, can, you can be in the nicest spot in the world, you can be enjoying your grass, my good man. You can enjoy the stream at the side of you, but all that matters in your world, ultimately, is that you know which way around the food chain works. As we go through Psalm 50, I want you to keep our good friend, the antelope, chewing on the grass, neglecting the food chain lessons, thinking it can still get away despite the fact that he's had his head ripped off, looking out into the blue yonder, thinking everything's fine, I want you to keep that firmly in your head. I think one of the habits of people in modernity of the last couple of hundred years is that we look out on the world, living in like a secular, enlightened society, is we look out on the world and we think, sort of internally investigating, 
and looking out at the world with our telescopes, more than at any other point in human history, particularly in the West, we think we've got it all nailed. We look out at the world and we say, yeah, we understand the human mind. We understand, we've, got a, we've, t we've nailed down psychology. We've looked out at space, we've made a full assessment of it all, we know exactly where we are, and we dismiss so much, we dismiss God's book, we dismiss so much of ancient history of the wisdom that we've accumulated over the years, and we say we've got it nailed now. Here's the question I want to put over the talk, really, over Psalm 50. If you're, if you're sort of dabbling with faith, if you've not really, if you keep coming along to church, but you're not, you're, not really, you're not really been doing it, if you're new to church, do you think when you look at the world that we live in right now, there's been some really good things, there's some rubbish, but do you look out at the world that we live in right now, a group of people who says we've absolutely got it, do you think that we've got it nailed? Do you think we've got it nailed? Or do you think we could still use some help? Think about the plastic floating in the ocean. We're going to choke on in our own food soon. Think about the injustice. Think about the fact that we've made all these strides. There's still poverty out in the world. There's still all this injustice. Do you think we've got it nailed now? Or do you think we could use some help? The psalm that we're going to look at today causes us to reflect through verse 7 and 12. It causes us to reflect on where we are in the big scheme of things. And it asks us to have a look at it. Read with me verse 7 through 12, if we get it up on the text. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel, and I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not rebuke you for your sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains, and the creatures of the fields, they are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world is mine, and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls, or drink the blood of goats? This psalm infers a few things to us. God says to this people, said, you've misunderstood your place in the food chain. You've got it wrong. You're looking at this like, you're looking at me like, I'll just dissipate. If you don't keep bringing me these bulls, if you don't keep running off and bringing me these bulls, I'll just disappear up into thin air. You've got the, you're looking at this the wrong way around. And kind of, I think that we do that sometimes in our Christian lives. Christianity can be a bit like that, kind of, it can feel like if we don't, if we don't keep coming along faithfully, if we don't keep being good evangelicals, if we don't keep telling people about God, that God's just going to disappear up into thin air. It can kind of feel like that. Psalm 50 gets us to think as people. Is it possible that human beings can live thinking right now in the moment, looking out of the world, that we've got everything nailed down, but as we misplace ourselves on the food chain, as we, like our friend the antelope, just focus on what's in front of us right now we totally miss like we totally totally miss god but us as people can totally miss the bigger things psalm 50 and we're going to go through it kind of a couple of points nick a couple of points from it it's it says to us it's like a slap around the face for people just going through life thinking we've got it all nailed down for how it is now it says people you need to flip 
your view of the world. What you need more than anything is an, an antelope-esque wake-up call. You need to have your worldview flipped. So go with me through the psalm. Psalm 50, verse 1. First thing we get is God's introduction. This is, and it's, this point number one is really, really simple, but I've and we're all Christians, some of us, some of us, well, lots, lots of us might be Christians, we might have been Christians for a long time. But point number one is really valid. The first point I want to say is, this is, this is God speaking. Do you notice his introduction? I am the mighty one, God the Lord. I speak and I summon the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets. If you're ever in the spot, and I've found this the hard way, where you need to introduce yourself a couple of different times, then people have forgotten who you are. And it's pretty lousy when that's the moment when you meet somebody in the street and you go, hi, it's Ash. And there's this blank. There's the blank look on the face. Oh, Ash, I'm a, uh, one of the pastors at Christ Church. I, I used to live a couple of streets down from you. I've seen you a couple of times at the park. And when you've got to do that, the person's forgotten who you are. God, I think in this moment, is saying, do you, do you, remember, do you remember who I am? I'm God. I'm the almighty one. I spoke the word into being. I am eternal. I am before and after all things. I am the God. I am I'm Yahweh. I'm the name you didn't even say. I am the promise-keeping God. Sounds like a really obvious thing to, to stand up and chelp about, but these, these people have forgotten who they're dealing with. Sometimes God can be like, sometimes for me, in my life, God's been like that warm, fuzzy friend that I turn to every now and again. God says to us here, right at the start of the psalm, he says, yeah, I'm Abba Father. I'm somebody you can draw near to. I want you to, I want you to talk to me at the side of your bed. But I am, I am God. I, I flung stars. If, you, if you're going to understand who I am, I'm going to flip the world around. I'm the, I'm the guy who flung stars into space. I'm the guy who wraps it up at the end. I am the God who sustains you. I am that God. So it changes things. Here's the first way that it changes things. Listening, and you see it in the text, listening becomes a priority for human beings. If there's a God, and if it's who he says he is, not just our warm, fuzzy friend, then life's a lot more about listening than we realize. Listen to what he says. The mighty one, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets from Zion perfect in beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes and will not be silent. A fire devours before him and around him a tempest rages. He summons, listen to the language, he summons the heavens above and the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my consecrated ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. And the heavens proclaim his righteousness for God himself is judge. Hear my people and I'll speak, O Israel, and I'll testify against you. It's like, a, it's like the language of a courtroom drama. If you read through the whole of the psalm, I think the author has got his eye on the courtroom drama. God, the good judge, God, the judge who sits above all things, is going to tell us some serious stuff. And the thing that's crucial, the thing that's really crucial is that these people are in a place, notice the, notice the language in the text. God says, gather to me, get yourself in a spot where you can hear this. If there's, a, if there's a God, life's flipping on its head, if there's a God, and if he speaks, 
Now you think about this in terms of how you balance up your life, your priorities in life. If, if there's a God and if he speaks, life's a whole lot more about being in a place where you can hear him than it's about anything else. God says to his people, gather to me, you lot. I'm a judge. I'm a God who speaks. Make yourselves to be in a spot. Cup your ear up to where I am. How often does that kind of feature in your life that you think, man, if, I'm, if, I'm, if the rest of 2019 is going to mean anything to me, I'm going to I'm going to stop prioritizing this, 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 and this because I come to church every Sunday and I've got a pretty strong idea that there's a God who's real. I'm going to make sure, I don't know where that would be for you, if it means you need to spend more time in a bath, if it means, I don't know, put yourself in a spot where you can hear God speaking. One of the things that we say over and over again, I think, one of the things that I've said over and over again, and I think society says over and over again, is God doesn't speak. He's quiet, he's God. He's got nothing to say. His voice has gone when the fear went in the 1800s or whenever it was. Here's what I think God's word would say about that. God says, I speak. Remember the story about my son that people have not been able to shut up about, that's not been able to get out the news? That book that's in everybody's living room pretty much? God says to people, I speak. See my creation? Look out of your windows, tell me I'm silent. God says, I speak. The last time you sat down for more than 10 minutes and said a prayer that was something like, I'm a bit lost, God, could you speak to me? And then I've managed to remain quiet for 10 minutes. God says to you, I speak. I think it's often the case. As you can see intimated in this psalm, hear, O Israel, and let me testify against you. I think it's often the case that we don't sit down to listen because anytime we sit down to listen, God, who's a holy God, who wants us to go on a righteous path, says, let's head this way. God speaks. God's a real God. God is a God who speaks. Let's read on verse 8. I do not rebuke you for the sacrifices or your burnt offerings, which are ever before me. I have no need of a bull from your stall or goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and creatures of the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. For the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? He says something here that kind of, I don't know if you're ready to hear it. I don't know I will sit with you when you do hear it. He says, I see, you see this way? He says, I see what you do. I've got my eyes on it all. I see what you do. And this is the brutal line. I see what you do. I see your endeavors, but I don't need them. You see that? I see what you're doing, but I don't need them. God has clocked these people that bring their, bring their sacrifice. And he's kind of observed within me. He said, I, I see how you think this is something that sustains me. This is, the, this is, this is the thing that you think is crucial. You think that the, the real thing that's going on here, the important thing is that you keep on bringing me sacrifice. He says, I don't rebuke you. This, is, this, should, this should kind of warm my hearts up a little bit. He says it in kind of a loving father kind of way. Like a dad who looks at his children who do a couple of dishes of an evening and say, I've helped you out, dad. Look at the way I'm restoring the house. He kind of talks to us in that way. He says, I see what you're doing. I see your, night. I see your sacrificial acts. I see you grabbing the cow and sacrificing the cow. I see you Christians making sacrifices in your life. I see it. But I don't 
I don't need it. That's what God says. I don't, I don't need this. Why? I don't need your bulls and your goats. It's, I think this is almost funny. He says, do you think I, he kind of says, do you think I eat these? Do you think that's how it works? Do you think I'm here? Do you think you bring me the cow? The cow is burnt up and, I, and that's my dinner? Do you, think, do you think it works like that? Do you know how far wrong you are? Why does he not need this? Because, and this is where it flips it on its head. It says, because everything is owned and seen by me. Look at what he says. Every animal of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the fields are mine. He says, it's, he says it's, it's all. I see what you're doing with your stuff. I see you grabbing hold of the stuff, but he says it's all, it's all mine. Uh, one of my favorite shows is... Um, is it one of these discovery shows where they go out and explore and they grab hold of new insects? Have you seen these kind of shows where they go out and they go into the wilds and they come along with a new, you know, they get really excited. Some guy, you know, nerdy guy, he's like, oh, look at this. I found this amazing insect. He's really chuffed a bits. God says to us about this insect, he says, yeah, that's great. He said, I, I thought that up in eternity past. I've had my eye on that thing that's a bit like a dung beetle that's made your day finding it. I had my eye on that thing a million years ago. I know its whole family line. I know its whole circumstance. I have clocked that. It's mine. I, I saw that. I conceived of that. I have sustained that. You found it now millions of years later and it's made your weekend. It's made your whole day. You think you're on top of the world. You think you're a king. I saw that beetle a million years in the past. The cattle that grazes around when we look at cows, we just see hamburgers on legs, really, don't we? When we look around them, that's, that's what they've become to society, really. We look and we go, there's dinner running around. God says, that cow that you, th- that you chew on and you turn into hamburgers, I, that was my idea. I thought that up. I sustained that. The sparrow, the bird in the mountain that the wildlife show doesn't see, that none of us are aware of, that lives a lovely, fulfilled life, and then one day drops down dead, and no human being knows about it in the whole world. God says to us, if you can believe this, I've got my eye on that bird. It's, It's mine. I know about it. I care about it. It's significant to me. God says to us in this passage, nothing... None of the stuff on the whole of the earth, nothing gets past me. I, I created it. I envisaged it. I sustain it. I see it. I own it. Nothing gets past me. God says to us, you've really got to rethink how you look at the food chain of life. Remember our friend, the antelope at the start? Chewing on the cud, looking out at the world, thinking that he had it all together just focusing on now, getting his head ripped off by a lion. God says, you've got you've to have a real another look at the way this food chain works. Everything, everything that you see is mine. There's, he says to us, this, and this is, this is, kinda, this is a pain to hear. He's, he's like, he says, there's nothing that you can bring me. You can't go home and spend a fortnight in your garage and come up with some creation and say, look what I've got for you. You can't go away and 
spend a whole year in a monastery and say to God, look at what I've got for you. Look how that's going to change the world. God, it's all, there's nothing we can give him. There's nothing we can add to him. God looks around and he says, this is all mine. Sacrifice, living sacrificial lives. This is what the lesson that he wanted the people to learn. It's not about you sustaining me. That's not the way around that this story works. I don't need it. Sacrifice is about you. You need it. It's for you. You need to learn about it. You need to, you need to have your hearts changed by it. You need to go through the process of living this sacrificial life and it changing you inside. It isn't about me. There's no amount of stuff that you can grab and give to me that I need. It's not about that. It's about looking. This is what the psalm does. It causes us to flip our view on the world and look around at everything and see God's hand on it. And God says to us, verse 14 and 15, he says, you need to live in light of this. Sacrifice, thank offerings to God. Fulfill your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in days of trouble and I'll deliver you. He says, just know this. Sacrifice with a heart that's moved. Keep your promises. Depend on me and I'll save you. He says, just, just get on with that. And you hear that psalm, hopefully explained halfway decent, and you say, right, I see what you're saying about God. Here's the thing, guy at the front preaching. Here's my problem. Here's my problem with thinking I need to start being sacrificial. Here's my problem with worrying about my heart and keeping my promises and listening to God. The world, the world doesn't feel very much like that. Doesn't feel like God's got his eye on it all. If, for a second when I'm at church, it might feel like it. When we sing this couple of creational songs that we sang at the start, I get a bit of a sense of it. But see when I get home, see when I flick the news on, it looks like people are in charge to me, God. So when I hear the guy at the front telling me, that he thinks these things are important, listening's important, that keeping your promises to God are important, I just, it becomes less important. Because I just, it just doesn't feel real. Here's the thing that I want to leave you with. Because I, I think the psalm is the way that we've got to see the world. I just want to show you really simply three ways in which you, so at the moment you're looking at this psalm thinking, yeah, what? I kind of know it, I kinda, it's kind of a nice sentiment, but I can't, in terms of making it a song that I imbibe, that I really own, I don't, I, just, I don't know if I can really get there and stick there. I want to tell you three ways in which I think that we, hit, we, see, that, we see a song like that, ancient wisdom, and, then, and we go, oh, it's really awesome, it's really nice, but I don't know if I can own it, I don't know if I can sing it like I really believe it. And then I want to tell you three ways in which you, you take that psalm and then you, you see the story of Jesus and you go, man, yeah, I can sing it now. Just three simple ways which Jesus helps take us down the road a little bit. So the first one gives us a reason to believe. It gives us a reason to believe that God is over all these things. Jesus comes to earth. He lives this he lives this kind of perfect life. Lives a life that draws people's eyes to him, that people start to follow him. He does miracles so that this number kind of increases. And he lives in such a way that, you know, millions of people throughout history have, have followed him. And at the point when, 
at the point when he's got everybody's attention, at the point when the whole of the focus is on him, he goes up to Jerusalem. When he, when he could become a king, when, he, when the world kind of is oyster in that sense. And the, the watching world says, yeah, this is a good man. This is a miraculous man. This is a different man. What? You know. And he hands himself over to the authorities. And he offers himself up as a sacrifice. And the watching world for the next 2,000 years goes, what do we make of that? It's a sacrifice that shows us which way around this story is. It's such an act of love. It's love so amazing, so divine, so otherworldly. It says to people like us reading about it 2,000 years later, man, I need to have a look at that because that points towards something higher. That points towards not a God that I don't need, but a God that I need. That's the first thing Jesus does. He gives us a reason to believe. The second thing he does is he gives us a way to have a heart. God's God's big beef with Israel, with the Jewish nation, with the Hebrew people, one of his big beefs was that the acts of good that they did only ended up boosting their own egos. Do you notice that? You said, this, this has become more about you than me. That's this, one of the stories of the Old Testament. The people behave in a certain way, and it's pretty good most of the time, but it's, it only seems to serve their own ego. Have you noticed that when you do good things? Is that real for you? I, I can't physically do anything good without my ego getting a... It, feels impos, it's, it is impossible to do good things and not have your ego get pepped. I did a mildly good thing the other day. I changed, having been gently reminded for a few weeks, I changed a light bulb in, in the ladies' loose, and I felt like I was a legend. That I came off thinking, what a selfless miraculous hero you are, Ash. My, and it was a light bulb. We can't do anything good without getting an ego boost. That's kind of one of the stories of the Old Testament. And this is what the cross does. It's like an ego defense system because every Christian needs to go there. And when you go there, you look at the cross, and if that's your mechanism of faith, you realize that you've got note. You've got nothing before a holy God. You've brought nothing to this table. It's all on him, and it's nothing on you. And you look at the cross, and your ego is protected. It can't get any bigger. If your eyes are on that thing, I mean, it happened to me in the lose, but I'll, you know, God, will work, God will work on me. That's what the cross does. It gives us a way to have a heart. Jesus gives us a way to believe, and he gives us a way to have a heart. The last thing that he does is he gives us a reason to go on in a world where it doesn't feel like God's always in control. Listen to these verses. In Matthew 10, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples, and he gives them what I would describe as the worst team talk for guys going out facing death I've ever heard in my life. It's, a, it's, it's more like a reason not to go. So I'm just going to read a concise bit of the few verses that lead up to this. Jesus says, so this is, we'll get to this in a second, this is the verses heading up to that. Jesus said, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. This is, this is the story, Matthew 10, of Jesus sending the 12 out. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. You're going to get eaten up, bottom line. 
Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and will flog you in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings. You're going to get, you're going to get eaten alive, and then you're going to get taken to places that are completely out of your depth. You're going to get beaten up. It goes on to say, brother are going to betray you against brother to death. It's going to be chaos. All men will hate you because of me. Anybody feel like going out, becoming a missionary on the back of this? Do you feel pumped? Is that how you feel? All men, all men will hate you because of me. But he who stands firm will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. People are going to hate you. It's going to be impossible. It's going to feel impossible. It's going to feel pretty dark. You're going to be out of your depth. And you're going to need to be on the run. That's what he's telling these, these 12 people on the way out into the world. He's basically saying, if you act with the courage of your convictions, it's going to, be, it's going to feel like a dark, lonely place. And, and th- at this point, the disciples, I mean, I don't know. I'm reading between the lines a little bit, but I'm guessing they're terrified. And then he goes on to tell them these words, Matthew 10, 26 to 31. He says, do not be afraid. That's where, he, that's where he says now, after saying all that. Let me, t- let me tell you how it's going to be. You're going to be beaten up. You're going to be chased around. You're going to be eaten alive. Probably going to get killed at the end of it, certainly at these times. Jesus' words, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be disclosed or hidden, that won't be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Don't be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Be afraid of the one who can kill both body and soul in hell. And not two sparrows sold for a penny, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your Father. And even the very hairs on your head are numbered, so don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. What's he saying? Even though you're terrified, even though it looks pretty grim, you can sing. See that? You can proclaim it from the rooftops. You've got something to shout about. Because why? Why, why, why have they got something, something to sing about? Because all, Jesus, this is what he says here in the text, because all you need fear is God. Do you see that? Don't be afraid of someone who can kill who take your life. Be afraid of someone who can take both the soul and the body in hell. He says, all, all you've got to fear is God. And this is what he says to these 12 guys as they're thinking about going, away, going off and giving their lives up for him. He says, if you journey with me, if you walk with me, and he's told them he's heading to the cross. He says, if, if, if you go on this journey with me, what you'll see is darkness and fear and trouble if you stick with me on this road, if you manage to get as far as the cross with me, you'll get to the resurrection with me. And you'll look back and you'll see that I am not somebody whose life can be taken. You'll realize that hanging around with me gives you a connection to something eternal. Jesus says, if, if you journey with me, then you're his. And he says, if you're his, then you pick up the promises that are his. The promises in Psalm 50. He references the sparrow. This little sparrow. He says, 
He says, don't worry. If you're mine and you're on this journey with me, don't worry. You're like, you're more precious to me than two sparrows. This sparrow who could live this insignificant life that nobody knows about that drops down dead one day that God says, I've got my eye on that sparrow. He says, how much more, if you are mine, will I, will I have my eyes on you? This is our promise from God. Not that the world will look rosy. Become a Christian, you think, I want a rosy-looking world. That's not the promise. Promise is maybe a bit the opposite. If you follow me, it might be difficult. But, but see that psalm that describes this God who's got his eyes on everything. If, if you take up this promises, if you journey with me, then those promises... That God, the God whose eyes are fixed on the tiny beetle, who knows the cattle on a thousand hills. He says, that God is your God. This is your promise tonight. And it makes, and it's an empty promise without Christ. It's just a nice psalm. It's just a nice, warm, fuzzy thought. Jesus says, don't just take that nice, warm, fuzzy thought. He says, soak that in the fact that there was a human being who came to earth, who lived and died and rose again and points towards something way better. And do that knowing that your life is precious, that God sees your story. You think you might be like some little insignificant sparrow who, whom nobody knows. You think, I'm going to drop down dead one day. Nobody's going to look my way. I'll be forgotten about in 20 years. God says, well, maybe on earth, but he says, I will see you and I will save you, and I will keep you.